Jesus says that he wants you to have his joy in you. He wants your joy to be full, complete, robust. And he wants you to have his joy forever. Now, joy that starts now, that you can experience now, and then in heaven becomes a joy that goes beyond any joy you've ever experienced. So when it comes to experiencing Jesus' joy now, how would you say we are doing as a nation? How are we in this room doing? A lot of you are going through a lot of things. What do, our pe- what do people in our culture believe will give them joy? Are they correct, or is the key to experiencing joy different than what they think it is? Now, in recent weeks, we've been highlighting missions and missionaries, and we've had uh, Kevin Ford came in, and he works with graduate students at MIT with InterVarsity, and Jim and Debbie Samland, who work training Christian leaders in Eastern Europe, and Will and Jamie uh, Jordan, who work in Afghanistan. And 15% of our budget goes to support missionaries like that, selected missionaries doing wonderful things. Now, another mission that we support as a church is called Beautiful Response. And Beautiful Response feeds, houses, clothes, former street kids in Uganda, now also in Haiti. It helps them with medical care and schooling. It was founded by Sonia and Caleb Schutz, and Sonia happens to be the daughter of Eric and Lori Davidson. Lori will be praying later. And every time Lori goes to visit the kids in Africa, she comes back and talks about how they just love to sing worship songs to Jesus. And they just express so much joy, even though they have so little and have such difficult lives. They don't have cell phones. They don't have lots of clothes or a lot of great food. They're, they're kind of crammed together. Nobody has their own room. Kind of a basic education. But they seem to have more joy than is often the case with so many children here. More joy than many teenagers here. More joy than many adults here. Why do you think that might be? How is your joy? You specifically. What do we think in this culture? Do accomplishments give us joy? Well, they give us some. Does money give us joy? Well, some, but you know, the studies show that people who make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year are not significantly happier than people who make $75,000 a year, household income. We're fallen creatures, so we're often selfish, and we especially have trouble perceiving certain truths. Social scientists, they've spent all this money and all this time trying to figure out what makes human beings happy. Well, Jesus tells you right here. What will give you his joy? Let's look at what he says and kind of how it fits in with the statements we've had in recent weeks as we've been looking at John 13 through 17, the final words of Jesus before he died. Would you open an app or a pew Bible to John 15? It's on page 901. Very famous passage in the Bible. It's part of what Jesus said that last night. But rather than start at the beginning, I'm going to start at verse 11. says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, who has the most complete joy that exists? God does. The 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mystery we call the Trinity, exists in a phenomenal state of joy. They're constantly rejoicing in each other and in the angels and in all of creation. But you know who they especially rejoice in? You. If you're a follower of Jesus, they rejoice as they look forward to the amazing creature that you are going to become. Now, what does this verse say that Jesus wants for you? He wants his joy in you, and he wants your joy to be full. And what is it that he says will put his joy in you and make your joy full? Now we go back to verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Well, do accomplishments give people joy? Some, but it usually fades. Does money give people joy? Not, not really. Loving and being loved is the primary way that we are hardwired to experience joy. Loving God and experiencing his love is the best way, the most complete, long-lasting way for us to experience joy, abiding in his love. You experience joy when you experience love. Pursuing loving God and people according to what God says is loving, if you pursue that, you will experience joy. However, hedonism, which is the pursuit of pleasure, often because people think it will give them joy, people who pursue their own joy or happiness instead of love often end up with neither. And the reason is that joy is a byproduct of love. Let me illustrate. Have you ever driven down the 101 to Ventura? I first went on that road when I was four years old. Uh, I've gone almost multiple times every year since then, except for some years I was out of the country. I have, there is a refinery right by the road, and there's a big, tall uh, exhaust pipe out at the top is a flame, a big flame. I saw it when I was four. I've seen it every year since. That flame has never gone out to the best of my knowledge, at least not when I've gone by. Apparently that flame is them burning off natural gas, which is a byproduct of them refining crude oil. See, when crude oil is pumped out of a well, if you were to stick that into your internal combustion engine car, which either uses diesel or um, gasoline or even natural gas, would the crude oil work? No, it wouldn't work because it's ruining your engine. It has to be refined first. The crude oil is sent to a refinery, and as it's heated primarily, other processes as well, different products are produced. Gasoline is one of the main ones they want to produce, and diesel fuel. But the process also produces byproducts, for example, kerosene. They're not really aiming to produce the byproducts. They're produced as part of the process. The joy that Jesus wants you to have isn't produced by aiming at having joy. It's produced by aiming at loving God well and loving people well. Now, from last week, we talked about what is perhaps the central concept of Christianity. Last week in chapter 14, Jesus said, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. 
and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And he also said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Perhaps the greatest central truth of Christianity is that God wants to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you. A byproduct of experiencing God's love and loving him back will be that you will also be filled with joy. So you're all set. You can leave now. Go forth and love God. Because we're all really good at loving others, aren't we? You know, in the Gentile culture of the ancient world, people were often clueless as to what it meant to be loving. They were really harsh with their children, beating them and setting very strict codes of conduct. conduct. Instead of being faithful to their wives, many men had sex with temple, pro- temple prostitutes. Successful people thought it appropriate to boast about themselves, either their wealth or their power or their accomplishments. They would flaunt it. They actually thought that that meant they were better than other people. Somewhere in the neighborhood of a fourth of the population had been enslaved by the other three-fourths who thought it was better. Women had minimal rights. Now, of course some people love their children. Of course some people love their spouses. But they had never been shown how to love them well. They mostly loved other people the way they observed their parents loving their children and each other which we would have been appalled at. Today, the teachings of Jesus about loving others, turning the other cheek, serving others, humbling ourselves, wives respecting their husbands, husbands sacrificing themselves for their wives, gently disciplining our children, these teachings have become so much a part of our culture that we have become really good at loving each other and almost never hear of divorce or children hearing neglected or abused. by nature, we are not good at loving God or loving people. Even after nearly 2,000 years of the benefit of Jesus' teachings, we need a great deal of help if we're going to love well. We all need that help. We need supernatural help, first of all. And the principles I'm about to go over with you, you can't really benefit much from them. You need the Holy Spirit and his power. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. We saw that last week. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then the Spirit of God is in you, and he is there to help you, to give you the power to resist temptation, to actually change your heart, your desires, and your attitudes so you'll become better at loving God and people from the heart, not just acting. But don't try to become more like Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. You will not love God well without the Holy Spirit helping you. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want to help you only in loving God, but also in loving people better. And actually in loving yourself better. For if we're to love our neighbors ourselves, we need to love ourselves and Most of us don't love ourselves very well. Three times in chapter 14, Jesus says that if we love him, we will keep his commands. We will obey him. We will do what he says. Does that mean that the only people who actually love Jesus obey him perfectly? I don't obey him perfectly. You don't obey him perfectly. I know you. Um, 
Does that mean that no one actually loves Jesus? You remember from last week that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to lead his disciples into all the truth, to inspire them. They wrote, and fortunately, those apostles helped to clarify a lot of what Jesus left unsaid. And they're especially helpful with this question, that does Jesus mean that if we love him, we will obey him perfectly? The apostle John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So clearly we are not perfect, are we? No one is. John goes on to write later, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God's Spirit does not let us continue on in a sin without experiencing godly grief. Godly grief is a deep sorrow that is focused on God and how we've treated him. Godly grief, Paul writes, is followed by repentance and forgiveness and a restored relationship with God. We feel restored. Well, if no one born of God makes a practice of sinning that they always will repent and break that sin and not just keep on sinning, how often should you experience godly grief and receive God's forgiveness? Well, how often do we sin? We need to experience godly grief and forgiveness whenever God convicts you that you've done something wrong, either because you disobeyed what he told you or you did something that you should have been able to figure out you shouldn't have done. The regular habit of experiencing godly grief, repentance, and forgiveness is missing in the lives of perhaps most his children. And when we do not make this a regular habit, we will find ourselves making excuses for whatever our most prominent sin is. However, when we experience God's forgiveness regularly, then we're forced to look at our failings and take them more seriously. See, most of us will tend to disobey God repeatedly in some area. In theology, we call this a besetting sin. It besets you. It kind of clings to you. It's one or two areas in which you are especially tempted and sometimes succumb, sometimes you choose to give into temptation and disobey. And you probably have something coming to mind right now. This is typical for most followers of Jesus. The danger is that you will gloss over your besetting sin because it's too humbling to experience godly grief and ask God's forgiveness for the 50th time. And then you'll be tempted to either redefine what is sin and tell yourself that your besetting sin is not so bad, especially compared with other people who happen to have a besetting sin in some area that you don't struggle with. Eventually, since God's seed remains in you, if God's seed is truly in you, then you will need to experience godly grief, repentance, and forgiveness so that you are restored to a right relationship with God and then can experience his love more deeply. So if we truly love Jesus, will we obey him perfectly? No. If, if you were to ask my wife Janice if I love her perfectly, do you know what she would say? No, definitely not. 
If you ask my children if I have been the perfect father, what would they say? No. If you ask God if I obey him perfectly, what would he say? No. We don't love anyone perfectly. We do not repent perfectly. We do not forgive perfectly. We do not obey perfectly. But that does not mean that we do not love, repent, forgive, and obey profoundly from the heart. Basically, but not perfectly. Can Janice perceive that I love her profoundly? Yes. Can my kids tell that I I love them from the heart? Of course they can. Can God and I both tell that I am basically obeying him instead of making excuses and just continuing on with something and glossing over it? Yes, I can tell God can do that. We don't obey perfectly, but we do obey basically. And we also repent and receive forgiveness when we sin. Now, why am I stressing this today? You might not have heard this for a long time. And if if nothing else today, I just hope that this is clear. Because millions of churchgoers in this country have come to believe that obedience to Christ is optional. Let me just repeat these in John 14, three times. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Does that sound optional? Now, we cannot obey Jesus on our own power. We need the Holy Spirit living in us. We need to depend on Jesus and our relationship with him. Jesus starts chapter 15 with a metaphor of how this love relationship with the Father works. Would you look again with me at chapter 15 and hope you'll follow along there. Starting at verse 1. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is generally a painful process, but that pain is often what it takes for us to respond and change and bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You cannot lead the abundant life God has for us on our own. It can only be experienced by abiding in Christ. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now, there are many passages in the New Testament that indicate that fruit always accompanies true belief. And Jesus himself says that many people will be be fooled into thinking they were his followers, and actually, they never had a love relationship with him. They never knew him. This is talking about people's eternal destiny and should be taken very seriously. It is important that you know what the Bible says are the characteristics of true belief, and we'll get to that. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We're going to talk about that and the other verses in this whole discourse of Christ in, in a couple weeks. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The Father is glorified. The Father is pleased when you bear much fruit. And fruit is one of the ways that you know 
you really are a follower of Jesus. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. You know, it's the one thing I'm praying for today is that this is going to be clear. And I hope this is becoming clear to you. Perhaps the central truth of Christianity is that God wants to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you. But since by nature we are lousy at loving people, we are lousy at loving God, Jesus has to abide with us. We need to stay with him, live with him, be with him 24-7 so that he rubs off on us. He teaches us and trains us to be more loving. And we learn that, you know, those little lies you help to make people, you tell to make it easier, make people feel better, they're not, they're not really that loving. We think that's loving. He tells us it isn't. Or that getting together with your friends and laughing as you badmouth someone is a loving thing. He says it isn't. Or that just spending all of your income on your family and giving only 2% is loving. He says it isn't. Or that making love to someone who isn't your spouse is loving. He says it isn't. Or cheating on your taxes so your family will have more. Or holding a grudge, especially if someone did something to someone you love, that's loving them. It isn't. By nature, we are not good at loving people or loving God. So Jesus tells us to abide in him, to hang out with him constantly so that he can gradually transform our hearts, our desires, our attitudes. Now, in this process, we fail a lot. We sin a lot, especially in in one or two areas that will be our besetting sin. But over time, we begin to see fruit. So what is fruit? It says, God is glorified if we bear much fruit. What does Jesus mean by fruit in this metaphor? Well, many of you are familiar with Galatians 5. We'll put it on screen. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So one type of fruit are these inner character qualities. That's why we're always talking about transformation. It's being characterized by these attitudes, and also the actions that they engender. You see, Jesus at one point said that everything you do evil comes out of your heart, whether it's lust or anger or killing or whatever, comes out of your heart. But by the same token, everything that you do good comes out of your heart. And so when you have these qualities, they engender, they motivate, they empower everything good we do, whether it's helping the poor or patiently teaching our children or working diligently at our job, it flows out of our heart when we're doing it sincerely. Now, this list of character qualities is not exhaustive. There's more fruit of inner qualities that the Spirit produces. There are other lists in the Bible, but it's a good summary. So that's one type of fruit. Another type of fruit is Jesus said that we would go out and make disciples. That's fruit. That makes God happy when we tell people what Christ is doing in our lives and they turn their lives over to him. Anytime people are just helped physically also, that's another kind of fruit. God is glorified. God is, God is pleased when you bear much fruit. So just kind of summarizing on the screen, the fruit includes inner transformation, love, joy, peace, patience, etc. It 
it's sincere, loving behavior that is engendered by that inner transformation. It's people becoming followers of Jesus. It's people being helped. Okay, is that clear? What fruit is in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So if you're a follower of Jesus, then God is at work in you. And you are commanded to take your cooperation with God's work very seriously with fear and trembling. Now, in what ways are you expected to co-labor with the Spirit in this transformation process? What is your part? Well, a plant bears more fruit when? When it's fertilized and watered and pruned. We're also told in the New Testament that we are to train ourselves in godliness inner transformation of the heart, much like an athlete trains his body. See, only the Holy Spirit can actually change your heart, your desires, and your attitudes. But only you can choose to spend your time involved in the spiritual training the Holy Spirit uses to change you. And as we mention often here, and I hope by now the list is kind of clear to you, just kind of a beginner's list of spiritual training that you need to be involved is you need to be in consecrated prayer every day and building that habit. You also need to walk through your day in kind of constant prayer, both getting alone with God to pray and walking through your day with prayer. You need to study the Bible every day. There's various ways. You can listen to it. You can read it. You can memorize it. You can study small portions. You need to be involved every day. You need to serve others regularly. You've been given spiritual gifts to serve. You need to give a percentage of your income back to God. And if that's a big challenge for you because it's capped out, you start with 1% of your income and then the next year do two and work up to it. You need to worship every week, not just when you're in town, but when you're traveling as well. You need to be reminded of the gospel every week. And you need to be in a small group so you can be known and cared for. Those are just six beginning steps of spiritual training. Here's a great warning that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, be deceived. And they will think that they were right with God when they are not. How can you know if you have true biblical belief in Jesus Christ? A good summary that I've shared with you before and will share with you again is that true biblical belief is always accompanied by the four C's. We put them on screen. First, it involves correct content. You must believe the correct biblical content about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's done, what we call the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot redefine and fundamentally misunderstand who he is or what he has done, as some groups have done. Second, it involves conviction. Our belief becomes increasingly certain. Our conviction grows. We are convinced that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again. Our belief may start out, as Pascal said, as a wager or a bet, it may start out, as many people in our culture talk about, a leap of faith, but it doesn't stay there. Our conviction increases. 
It includes commitment. James says that the devil believes everything that we believe about Jesus. The difference is we have committed our lives to Jesus, our allegiances with him. We are loving him back and have made the commitment to obey him and follow him. And finally, the fourth key is change. And that's primarily what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Given time, you sleep on the cost if you have enough time, but given time, all followers of Jesus are changed. All experience some degree of inner transformation. The degree to which we suffer with Jesus, with the right attitude, the degree to which we choose to spend our time in prayer and Bible study, in fellowship, in serving, all of these factors are highly influential in the degree to which we will be transformed and the rate at which we will be transformed. After using this metaphor of the vine, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Don't let anything keep you from that joy. When he was about to die, the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, and he said, I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And he talks about great things awaiting me. But then he immediately laments about an old friend of his, Demas, who's mentioned earlier in a previous letter as a co-worker, and now Paul says he is in love with this present world and has abandoned Paul and presumably has abandoned Jesus. I've known many people like that over the years. In his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, which I recommend that you read if you haven't and reread if you have, John Bunyan uses Demas as a warning to Christians. He, in love with the present world, Demas buys a silver mine. He gets great wealth, but he completely misses out on a relationship with God. Whereas Paul says that his relationship with Jesus, although he suffered, although he gave up everything, although he was often abused, that his relationship with Jesus surpassed anything and everything. God deeply desires to have a loving, gracious, fulfilling relationship with you. But by nature, we do not love God well. We do not love people well. So God makes his home with us and then gradually changes our desires and attitudes, and we become better and better at loving him, better and better at loving people, even better and better at loving each other. And he does all of this because he wants you to experience his joy. That's why God created you, and Jesus sacrificed for himself for you, so that you'd be filled with joy. Don't miss out. Humble yourself. Confess that by nature you don't love well. Turn your life over to Jesus and let him change you so you will love better and better, so you will 